Hi listeners, I'm Hannah. And I'm Bianca. And today we're going to talk about family systems. Growing up in your family, you learn and experience things within your family system that not only affects how you function in your family, but it also affects how you function in relationships and how you navigate life and many of your personality traits. Bianca is going to talk to us about her knowledge on this topic, and then we're going to just kind of discuss our family history and what makes us us. So grab your coffee, get comfy, and let's take back Sunday. So Hannah, before we get this episode started, I am curious if you ever did your homework that I gave you and set yourself some goals. What do you think? I think yes. (laughs) I did. I did the homework. We'll talk about it, girl. So two goals that I made for myself is working out three times a week. um, And then also I made a goal to be more organized with my family and my life. And then also like kind of within that also like being organized with meal planning so that we're not eating out as much because Mm -hmm. we don't meal plan we don't have the groceries for whatever it's 5 30 and I'm like oh let's just go to McDonald's or let's go to Mexican it's a lot more money to eat out sometimes (laughs) depending (laughs) on what you're making at home it's a lot more money and it's just not as good for you right so um I've done really really well I actually bought a planner that I wrote everything down in for the year and then I wrote my goals and how to make those goals reality through your program and your kind of your steps (laughs) that's Bianca's program program. (laughs) through the smarter goals Mm -hmm. um and then I also bought a magnetic calendar that you can put on your side of your fridge or on the front of your fridge and I don't feel like I have to hold so much inside my brain I know where it's at. I know where to go. I don't have to just hold it in. That's good. It's been awesome. And we have been going to the gym. Yes, we have. We have been working it. Let me tell you, it has, (laughs) I feel really guilty. (laughs) This morning, I did not go to the gym and we were supposed to. Um, Listen, it's okay. I hit my snooze. (laughs) I hit my snooze many times and then I fell back asleep and did not go. So I'm feeling guilty about that. But. Overall, I am super proud of myself for making those goals and really sticking to them. I'm eating better, working out. I feel better. I'm I'm in a good place. So when do you, when are you going to evaluate? Like, was it after like a month you were going to look and see like, how did I do? Do I need to make adjustments? Things like that. Yes. So I have every four weeks I'm going to reevaluate And so I did buy a scale that links to my phone. So I weigh myself every morning. And I know that's not great for everybody. So I'm not telling you to do that. Um, I'm shaking my head at her because I told her not to buy one that I have one. She she did tell me not to buy one. (laughs) Because, but like, for example, I've had doctors say you should only weigh once a week. Yeah. Um, My doctor that I normally see has said weigh every day because really? you can go have seven days go by and a lot can happen in seven days so weigh every day that's crazy. know where you start weigh in the morning and that is a good accurate weight you know to see where your weight fluctuates day to day it's not for everybody but having that on my phone and it like breaks down like your body mass index and stuff like that um sets other goals for me mm-hmm. I want to do my measurements because I feel like it's not just yeah. a number but I don't know if I've said this on here or not, but I know you and I have talked about this. I, the last year, I focused a lot on my recovery, my yeah. mind, my soul, my heart. This is where I need to focus on my actual physical health. Yep. And I, same here. I think I had labs done recently. There are some changes that I need to make. I know that you're getting labs drawn just to kind of see, get a baseline of where you are. Yeah. And I think that it's really important to frame it in that aspect that, you know, I don't give a shit if I'm skinny. I just want to be healthy. I want my heart to be healthy. I want my body to be healthy, especially if I'm going to try to have a baby. And even if I'm not going to have a baby, even if I adopt a baby, I, you know, then my, my life will then be tied to someone else. And I just want to be here for as long as possible, you know? 
Well, and I have three kids and I want to be a good example for them. And yeah. I've been a good example this last year, showing them how to, you know, grow and learn in recovery and how you can take literally make an about face and make such a big change for yourself and your family. I also want to be like a good role model for them in that healthy aspect as yeah. well. Yeah, I agree. And we're, we're kind of going to talk today about how our actions as parents can influence our children. So I think that's a good transition. I'm really proud of you. Thanks. For sticking, for first of all, for writing your goals, because that's hard to sit down and evaluate, like, where can I improve? What do I need to improve on? And then actually following through, you know? So I am proud of you. It's been fun to watch you grow. Thank you. You're welcome. So with that being said, we're going to transition into the topic today, which is the family systems theory. And as some of you know, but now all of you are going to know, my original degree is in child and family development, and I chose this major with the intent of becoming a licensed family therapist or a special victims counselor. But life had other plans, and education called to me like the ocean calls to Moana, so. However, during undergrad, I did have a class called Family Systems Theory with my favorite professor, Dr. Love, if you know, you know. And I fell in love with studying families and observing the different dynamics that different families have based on the experiences that they face. Today, I want to share a little of my knowledge with you about the family systems theory, how it applies to my family, and how my family system has changed drastically over the last just five years, as my siblings and I are all growing and embarking on our own journeys and starting our own little families. So a little background on this theory. According to Newport Academy, psychiatrist Murray Bowen developed the family systems approach, also known as family systems theory, in the 1950s. The underlying theme of the family systems approach is that families are an emotional unit. They are an interconnected system of interdependent individuals. Moreover, they influence one another and their psychology cannot be understood in isolation from the system as a whole. The Bowen theory posits that family members respond to each other in habitual ways, according to their roles within the family and their unspoken relationship agreements. And he understood that these behavior patterns can create balance, but also may produce dysfunction. And then with this understanding in mind, the family systems approach helps people resolve issues in the context of their family unit. Bowen's family systems theory fosters insight into the family group dynamic, working with it to promote overall health. So basically, what he is saying is that each family unit has its own set of unwritten rules and expectations that we learn and adapt to in order to survive within the family system. These can be beneficial or, like he said, they can be dysfunctional. And for the purposes of this episode, when I say family unit, I mean the immediate family that you grew up with, the home that, in which you lived, the parents that raised you, the siblings that you grew up with, maybe not your biological family. And for this episode, I just want to say every family has some dysfunction. Oh, girl, you were going <laughs> to. Yes. <laughs> Do not feel like you're the only one. Some enlightened moments are going to happen. I can see light bulbs already. There are eight main principles in this systems theory, and we're going to talk about all of them in general and then dive into our personal experiences in each area where they apply. The, the eight principles are triangles, differentiation of self, nuclear family emotional process, family projection process, multi-generational transmission process, emotional cutoff, sibling position, and societal emotional process. That's a lot, y'all, but buckle up. We're about to get going. So let's just start at the top with triangles. I talk about these all the time. I think I've talked about them on this podcast. Triangles are toxic and not to be tolerated in any system, but especially a family system. So according to this system, triangles are a relationship system comprised of three people. Triangles usually have one side in conflict and two sides in harmony, contributing to the development of clinical problems, meaning that this is your classic two against one battle. I've seen this in friend circles, I've seen it in families. Nobody is safe from these terrible systems. And I think that the most common example for me is having these come up in a friend group. Because show of hands, how many of you lived in a triangle in middle school and high school, okay? <laughs> 
there's always going to be two friends that are ganging up on the third and it always shifts and someone's always the new target each week. It's always just kind of a rotation. So in my family, there are four boys, not an even number, but I wouldn't necessarily consider it to where there was ever a triangle. There were always, you know, there's always somebody for someone to hang out with. I really didn't care to be included. Like there was no drama with my brothers because I just didn't care. But as an adult, I will say that I've seen this relationship system rear its ugly head and drive wedges between members in my family. Now, I don't want you to hear me saying that two family members can't vent to each other because that's not this. Triangles are when two people are actively in disagreement with a third and that relationship is compromised or even damaged. Hannah, did you have any experiences with triangles growing up that you can remember? So, yeah, there. this wasn't exactly in my immediate family. I, you know, but I, my immediate family, I grew up, I was the third child out of four. I had two older brothers and a younger brother. We were four years apart, except for my younger brother. We were five years apart. So, like, it kind of, I feel like the same situation with yours, it just, there wasn't three of us that were close enough together that that would have been an issue. Right, right. But I do remember having, like, a triangle when I moved to my aunt's um, when I was around 18 and out of high school. And, you know, I thought I was an adult, but I really wasn't. Sure. You know, and I was still very much a child, even though legally I was considered an adult. (laughs) And I remember living with my aunt and, like, having conflict with her. And then that that created a triangle with my mom and her and I. And I wish – there's a lot of things I wish I could go back and change now, knowing what I know – as an adult, but there was that triangle of, and it was, you know, my mom and her kind of going at it because I was unhappy with something or Mm -hmm. she was unhappy Mm -hmm. with something I did. So there was like conflict there and it very much felt like a triangle. Very classic. Yeah. I would say that is a triangle. I also feel like my husband's family has had a triangle that I've seen. Um, He doesn't get along with his brother and biological mother And I know that that has caused issues. I think his brother was the main issue. But when he went to his mom with concern, she automatically took her brother's side. And his brother will always stand up for his mom, even if she's wrong, which created this issue of the biological mother and the brother teaming up and my husband feeling like the third person in that triangle and feeling like he wasn't ever going to be right and just ganged up on. Yeah. Um, I do want to say kudos to his dad and amazing bonus mom. Because they don't want any part of it. Like, they do not engage in it at all. They literally were like, you figure it out. Or we're like, we're not, we're not in this. Yeah. And I know that my husband, at one point at least, was hoping that his dad would, like, try step to and, mm-hmm. step in and, like, figure out a solution and, like, make them come together. He has never done that. You know, mm-hmm. it's just they don't, they don't talk about it. They don't want to be a part of it. They want them to figure it out. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not a professional. I did not get my degree in counseling, but I would say that that's not his dad's job to fix it. You know, that wouldn't have been his place. But as a child, you want your parent to stand up for you. Like you want your parent to step in and say, hey, you're treating this, you know, you're treating my son, my daughter unfairly. Or even like you guys are brothers. Let's figure this out. Yeah. But I don't honestly know if that would have a positive outcome and I think that I hate to speak for his dad but I feel like it might be like I don't want to be the bad guy too I don't want to be brought into this or somebody making think I don't want to be in a triangle yeah I don't want to I don't want somebody feeling like I'm taking a side yeah and that is hard I was so I was speaking more of like standing up to Zach's mom as opposed to his brother you know I can see I can see how hard that would be to try to be the referee between your kids. You know, that's, I can't imagine. No, I can't either. That sucks. And, you know. But it's not, I mean, it's not just this situation. There's situations like that all the time. Yeah. You know, there's, those triangles happen in families. Mm -hmm. Not that they're intentional, but they happen. They do. Yeah. Because I think that you feel more comfortable venting to your family. And then sometimes I think that that can turn into something else absolutely and that's why that was a boundary that I had to work with in therapy like how can I 
maintain who I am and listen and be empathetic and sympathetic, but also know where to draw that line to where I don't feel like I am being a part of something that is going to have negative outcome for someone else within my family. So our next principle is the differentiation of self. And this is one that took me a long time to grow into. This is essentially having a sense of individuality that is separate from the family. So honoring that role of the individual and not just the roles that you play within your family. We talk about this all the time, which for me would be a sister and a daughter. Individuals who are quote unquote highly differentiated or have a better idea of who they are outside of their family system are more likely to pursue goals independently and grow while those who have a less developed sense of self will seek validation from others and likely become codependent. So I absolutely experienced this in my relationship. When I branched out and had my own family system, my sense of self was completely obliterated and I became fully immersed in my role as a parent and a girlfriend. And we all see how that turned out. Whereas my ex was very differentiated in his role um, in the family as a partner. I gave 90, he gave 10, it didn't last. You have to honor yourself outside of your role in your family system. You are an individual first, and I know how hard that is for parents to hear, and I know how hard it is to embrace, but your children need you to be at your highest level of your best self for them. And to do that, you have to be pursuing goals and setting that example for them. And in doing that, You're creating a life model for them to grow into and also have a firm sense of self and purpose outside of the roles they play in their family. Growing up, I think that I had not so much of a differentiation of self and I really was the roles and the hats that I wore within my family. So my identity kind of completely circled around being a sister, being a daughter, helping take care of my brothers. And, you know, I had extracurricular activities that I would do in high school, you know, like I was in everything. But then once I went to college, you know, I feel like I didn't ever explore things that I liked and didn't develop that kind of sense of self or differentiate myself outside of the roles that I play in my relationships. And that's kind of where I'm struggling now to go back and um, develop that sense that I'm worth being myself without contributing in some sort of way in my friendships and my, my family relationships. And so I think that that's why when I got into that relationship with my ex that I was like, ooh, this is safe because I know how to just completely immerse myself in a role and just let that become my entire identity. And I think that people just really have to honor themselves. And we've talked about this, like you, you've got to honor all of those roles that you, you play. You've got to honor yourself as the individual. You've got to honor yourself as the partner if you're in a relationship. And you've got to honor the role that you have as a parent if you're a parent. All of these need their own nurturing or it's going to be out of balance and things aren't going to work. I'm curious, Hannah how your differentiation of self was in your home growing up and then how it looks now in your own family system. So I feel like I have kind of a similar experience as you. I very much immersed myself in being a daughter. Mm -hmm. And my parents might disagree (laughs) (laughs) with my actions, but my, my goal was is to be a good daughter, to do the right things and to be good and to be a good sister. Now my brothers will probably disagree <laughs> with that. But I I cared a lot about what my family thought of me. And being, I, I honestly was so focused on being good enough yeah. that I didn't know who I was. And then when I had the opportunity <laughs> to figure it out, I did not make good decisions. <laughs> I did not make good decisions. I, I was, it was like I was experimenting, but with all Mm -hmm. these things that were not good for me. 
And I, I really wish I could go back and talk to that 18-year-old <laughs> that was thought she was an adult and knew everything. Sure. Yeah. But I struggled with that same thing. Now within my family, I will say at the beginning of having a family, I really struggled as a single mom with uh, well, yeah. being just a mom. And, you know, trying to work and go to school and be a mom. But, like, I always – I had mom guilt all the time. Yeah. And it came from thinking that if I, you know, did something for myself that I wasn't a good mom. Or if somebody was watching my kid, I wasn't a good mom. But then I would go through bouts where I'd be okay with that and maybe push that too far. You know, mm-hmm. not be as mm-hmm. present – it was like I had this, I had trouble balancing those roles. Yeah. Like it was always off balance. Yeah. So like a big, big, like an all or nothing type thing. Yes. Like it and couldn't... I'm that way with a lot of things. I'm much better now, but I have in my life. It's like when I'm into something, mm-hmm. I am 100% in. Yeah. When we started this podcast, I, it was like I couldn't sleep. I was just so <laughs> invested and wanted to just do it and get yeah. it. Yeah. And you were like, girl, I need a break. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. But yeah, I think that my my childhood, I was focused on sh- at not even being a good person, just appearing to be a good person, yeah. appearing to do r- the right thing, appearing to be a good sister, appear- you know, a good student, a good daughter, you know, that I didn't know who I was. Yeah. And I, I think that that's normal for kids, you know, you that's that's your opportunity to try to figure out who you are and then you you know you get to adulthood and you can try a little bit different things and still kind of grow and develop into who you are for me I don't think I ever fully developed who I was until after my relationship ended in 2020 at 30 years old and that's not when you want that to happen you know if I could go back and talk to 18 year old Bianca I would tell her Go do things that you love to do because you love to do them. Go experience life. Yeah. Don't do things because of how it's going to make other people feel. Don't make choices because you think that's what other people want you to do. Do the things in life that you want to do. Get those experiences. Learn who you are. I remember I had a moment in undergrad when I was called out by a friend and they told me, you don't know who you are. And I think I was 20 years old. And, you know, now at the ripe old age of 33, I can reflect back and think, you know, I I think it's okay to not know who you are at 20. But I had no idea who I was. Like, I wasn't even close to knowing who I was. And that was kind of a turning point for me. That kind of Maybe that should have been my small moment that changed the entire trajectory of my life because that comment to me is what led me down a path of self-discovery and really focusing on, you know, I don't like to listen to this kind of music. I'm going to listen to something else that I really like. You know, I'm going to go listen to my 90s playlist more. I'm going to go listen to Yellow Card. I'm going to go listen to Meatloaf. I'm going to listen to Billy Joel because these are the things that I like. I don't want to listen to music that other people like because that's what they like. And for me, like, I like all music. But I was choosing to like the music because that's what other people liked. I wasn't choosing it for myself. Well, and I feel like I, through especially high school and my younger adulthood, was a chameleon. I I could act and be a certain way depending on who I was around. Yep. It and I took that as like a compliment. Like I got along with people. I was easy, I was easygoing, but really it was because I know who I was and I just kind of meshed in with whoever I was around. And I did the exact same thing. Why and are we the same person? I don't know, but we had very different mindsets on what that meant because as I grew up, I thought that meant that I was like a psychopath or I didn't have like a personality. I thought there was something fundamentally wrong with me. Because I could chameleon and change and fit in with everybody, but then never knowing, like, what my baseline was. I'm like, does that mean that I don't have a baseline? I love that. What, like, what, not knowing what your baseline is. Yeah. As a 34-year-old who, you know, 
has had a lot more experience. Mm-hmm. I know now what my baseline yeah. is. Yeah, me too. But I didn't for a very long time. I probably didn't until, to be honest with you, the last, I would say, six years. I would say the last one year. Well, yeah. You know? like I was trying to give myself a little grace, but definitely the last <laughs> one year. Apparently, I don't give no grace. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I... Man, I've always thought that that was a good quality, but I don't know if it really is. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure it is. Because it makes you likable. Yeah. And it is an easygoing trait to have. But at the end of the day, it's like, who are you? Yeah. Like, when you go home and look in the mirror, who are you? Yeah. You know? And that's that's something that's important to develop. I do think that it is, there's a different timeline for everybody. I do think that as parents, we should encourage our children to develop their interests and find things that they love and encourage that for them. Not, oh, mom really loves it when you do this. You should do this. Do it, kind of teach them to do it because they love it. They want to do it. That way they don't get in that mindset of, oh, I have to do things because it's making other people happy. Because that's how I got into that, where it's like, I'm going to listen to this music. I'm going to watch this kind of TV shows. I'm going to do, make these kinds of choices for the classes that I'm taking in college. You know, all of my choices were based on how other people would benefit from it and not me. I just had like a really proud mom moment in my brain. (laughs) So I'm going to share with you guys. Um, So, you know, there for a while was really worried about Corbin because he wanted to be the cool kid. Yeah. And he would like get in trouble at school because he would do things that he thought were cool or his, you know, (laughs) so-called friends would encourage him to do like because they thought they knew Corbin would do it and he would get in trouble. Yep. But within the last year, maybe two years even, he's really come into his own, like, person. Like, he knows what he likes. He doesn't care if other people think it's weird or, like, he likes the anime stuff. No one else in our family is into that. He doesn't care. It's okay. When we went school shopping, like, I would bring up a, you know, he wanted these certain shirts. And I would... Mm -hmm. Not that it was like a brand. It was a certain style shirt. Right. And I would like look at these graphic tees and he'd be like, no, mom. And like he didn't care that he was saying, no, that's not that's not what I'm looking for. That's not what I want. Yep. He has like a fashion sense that he is very particular about. He doesn't care that it's not anything like any of the rest of us in our family. Like he likes to be his own person and he has very particular taste and that's okay. Yeah. He likes certain music that I don't like (laughs) he you know like shows that I don't like and and that's okay he's not looking for that and then a few years back he was like I'm done doing baseball and I'm not gonna lie I secretly cried over that one but at the same time like okay like you don't want to do baseball you don't do baseball you know but for me it was hard because I enjoyed watching him play baseball so much my mom had that experience too with my brothers when they chose not to do a sport and it's It's hard because you, especially if they're good at it, you know, you're like, dang it, like, you're really good at this. I see that you do like it when you're there. And it's like, you see this potential. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like you have to remind yourself, like, okay, it's not about me. It's not about me. It's about you. And if this is the choice that you want to make, I'm going to encourage you and support you. I I just feel like I've done something right because he's definitely, yeah, you know. You're not wrong. He does. He's like, I like this. I don't care if it's. The popular thing in my house, you know, I think that is Or even the popular thing, you know, with his friends even, or or the people that, I don't want to say his friends, but like the kids his age. Yeah. Sure. I have a family and obviously put them first and everything, but I also try to make time for my original family. I like that. My original family. (laughs) The OG. Yeah. (laughs) The OG. (laughs) Especially at holidays. And it has been hard for me personally with my siblings growing up, marrying, having their own families. And then not being there for family events, whether that be a holiday, birthday, Mother's Day, Father's Day, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. This is hard for me. I just want us to be together and to continue memories. But I also understand that they have another family that now is their priority, but also another person's family to consider in those memories and holidays. Um, But I do feel grief sometimes with this subject. And I just kind of wonder if I'm crazy or if that's normal. And, you know, like I said, I'm not a professional, but I feel like that's normal. I feel like 
as we grow and branch out and start our own families, traditions are going to look different. And it's okay to grieve that kind of, I mean, I guess, quote unquote, loss of like childhood and loss of that connectedness that you have to that original family system. I think that that's normal. I mean, my brothers are starting to have families and holidays look different for us now too. And we have a new baby that's been, you know, brought into our family and that's going to look very different, you know, when holidays come up and it's just, it's a growing process. And we will talk about it in a little bit that, you know, change is hard and it can be painful, but it is necessary for growth. It is. Yeah. You know, because you want to see your, your siblings. And I think as the oldest, I kind of wear the hat of like the caretaker too, as like a second mom. And it's almost like watching your kids grow up and start their own families and move away. And that's the goal, right? Like you want them to be raised in such a way that they can have successful lives. But then also at the same time, it's like a double-edged sword. You're like, well, damn it. (laughs) Now they're gone. And I have this hole in my heart because I don't get to see them and love them in the ways that I always did when we were all growing up. So it's just a different, it's a different kind of experience. It's a different system. It's just a different love. Well, and I also feel like I appreciate and I've always loved my brothers, but I appreciate and enjoy their company a lot more as an adult. (laughs) (laughs) And I wish, I almost wish I could have felt that way as a kid and really taken in those moments that we did have together. Yeah. Because I think now as an adult, I want those because we did not always get along. Yeah. Well, and now those moments can be few and far between. Yes. You know, you've got brothers that live all over the place. Well, and not only that, travel. Yeah. Travel for work all the time. Yep. So moving into our third principle, it's kind of long-winded, so bear with me, but it is the nuclear family emotional process. And this is how a family operates in emotional interactions. Bowen believed that the nuclear family experienced issues in four areas, and they're described on his website as marital conflict, dysfunction in a spouse, impairment of one or more children, and emotional distance. So looking at marital conflict, as family tension increases and spouses get more anxious, each spouse can externalize their anxiety into the relationship. Each focuses on what's wrong with the other. They try to control the other and they resist the other's efforts at control. Looking at dysfunction in a spouse, one spouse pressures the other to think and act in a certain way and the other yields to that pressure. Um, Both spouses accommodate to preserve harmony, but one does more. So you've got one person that's kind of settling more than the other. The interaction is comfortable for both people up to a point. But if family tension rises further, the subordinate spouse, the one that is kind of settling a little bit more, may yield so much self-control that their anxiety increases significantly. So impairment of one or more children, I, I don't really like the term impairment. I think that it's kind of archaic because it could be, this could be a positive, a positive impairment. So maybe they excel at something like they're very gifted at sports or music or they're incredibly intelligent. And the spouse focuses their anxieties on one or more of their children. They worry excessively, usually have an idealized or a negative view of the child. So if the child has something that they struggle with a lot, um, that, that child is kind of the target. Um, this child can become more reactive than their siblings to the parents' attitudes, needs, expectations. This undercuts the child's differentiation from the family, and it makes them vulnerable to act out or internalize these family tensions. Their anxiety can impair them at school, their social relationships, and it can even impact their health. And then we have emotional distance. So this pattern is consistently associated with the others. People distance from each other to reduce the relationship intensity, but risk becoming isolated. So essentially, the basic relationship patterns result in family tensions coming to rest in certain parts of the family. The more anxiety one person or one relationship absorbs, the less other people have to absorb. And that means that some family members maintain their functioning, but it's at the expense of others. 
and you don't want to hurt each other. But when anxiety chronically dictates your behavior, someone is usually suffering. This principle can be hard to digest because nobody's making choices to intentionally harm their spouse or their family. But it's so important to take a step back sometimes and really think like, how is my reaction to this issue going to impact my family system as a whole? How is this going to impact my child? How is this going to impact my spouse? How is this going to impact how we move forward? And then this sets up to the fourth principle, the family projection process, which is the transmission of the parent's anxiety, emotional concerns, and or relationship problems onto the child who may develop emotional issues as a result. So rather than address their own problems, parents try to fix perceived problems in their children that remind them of their own. So this is something I remember learning a lot about in my clinical counseling master's program because it's so easy to project your pain onto others without even realizing it. And it can become damaging to your children because they then grow to embody your fears and your perceptions and your anxiety. By projecting your anxieties onto your children, they become hyper aware of things that they may not have even previously been aware of, such as body image, being around big groups of people. I'm pretty sure I projected my need for control by trying to make everyone run on such a tight schedule and routine. And looking back, I was neurotic and so desperate for control that I projected that onto my family. I think as adults, it's hard to own our problems without projecting them onto other people. Just like as individuals, it's hard not to project our emotions onto other people. Like I was super upset the other day and I was texting my mom and I was kind of in a heightened sense of emotion and I was very much projecting my anger onto her. And I told her, I said, I am so sorry that I am projecting all of this anger on you. It is not directed at you. I am angry at this situation and it is coming across to be anger at you. (laughs) And she understood. And fortunately, like we have that relationship where I can say that to her now. I can say like, hey, I recognize that you are upset. Please remember that you're not upset at me, that you are upset at this situation. And we can move forward and work from that. You know, as a child, you don't know how to how to verbalize that to your parents. You don't even know what you're feeling half the time. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So it's like, and you don't realize that when your parents are yelling at you sometimes that they're just projecting their pain and their anger from maybe a shitty day at work onto you. I mean, how many of you have had a moment or a day where you've had a really crappy day at work and you come home and your fuse is already gone and it's like everything is setting you off and it's just one big explosion after the other. Don't lie. Double hands over here. Like (laughs) I do it all the time and I still do it. And I'm an educated adult who is aware that that happens. Nobody is exempt from feeling that. No one is exempt from projecting their pain. No one's exempt from projecting their anxieties. You are responsible for fixing it though. You are responsible for making yourself aware that that's what's going on. Multi-generational transmission process is the fifth principle and oh boy, is this a big one. So Bowen believed that the roots of the most serious human problems are generations deep. The multi-generational transmission process determines the level of self people develop. And it also impacts the way that they interact with others, affecting how you choose who you spend the rest of your life with. People tend to choose partners that are have similar levels of differentiation. So small differences in levels of differentiation between parents and offspring lead to significant ranges. So let's say, Hannah, that you have a big differentiation of self. You know who you are and your spouse doesn't. Your kids are going to have huge variations. But if you and your husband both have the same level, they are more likely to have the same level of differentiation as you did. How we are affects who our kids are. And then it goes on to affect then who they choose to be with in their life. And that affects their children. And how we are in our relationship and on our own. Yeah. (laughs) Affects them. Hashtag goals. Hashtag goals. (laughs) So... 
looking now at the sixth principle, emotional cutoff, I think that this is a weapon that people use and I don't recommend it. And that's just my disclaimer going into this. But this is when a family member distances themselves from the rest of the family or cuts off contact to reduce, I'm putting in quotes, reduce stress or avoid conflict. And it's usually always done without any kind of resolution. So let's say that there's a fight in the family and one person who is at the center decides, you know what, I'm just going to go ghost and that's going to make everything better for me. It's not going to work. I'm sorry to say. Yes, conflict is hard. Yes, conflict can be painful. But avoiding that conflict and just ghosting the entire situation causes even more stress for the family that was left with all this remaining stress and anxiety of not having that resolution. And then on top of that, you have the distancing family member that's going to place way too much importance on their current relationship or any future relationships to try to compensate for having that lost connection with their family. So if I were to have this massive falling out with my family and I just cut them off without resolving that pain, I risk then putting unfair expectations on any future relationship that I engage in to meet that need that I no longer get from my family. I just, I think that conflict is meant to be resolved. Even if that resolution is, I can no longer contribute to this family in a productive and healthy way. And this is where I leave you. We're going to move in to the seventh principle that resonates with me the most because it is the sibling position. And as the oldest of five, I truly believe that where you are in the birth order allows you to assume specific roles within the family relationship system. I find this so interesting. (laughs) So this usually happens because of a difference in parental expectations and discipline. Because how many of my fellow oldest children look at their younger siblings and know that they did not go through the fire like we did, y'all? Listen. My brothers say that all the time. I bet they do. My brother and I say that all the time, too, about our youngest brothers. And I tell my parents that. My youngest brothers were treated like angel babies. And then my brother, who's the next in line under me, and myself were held to pretty strict expectations. I find it fascinating that the sibling position can also dictate or predict successful future relationships. So, for example, an executive who's an oldest child may work well with an assistant who's a youngest child because they're used to that kind of role in their family system. And likewise, people whose sibling rank positions are complementary may be less likely to divorce than if their positions are at odds. So, like oldest and youngest, I just, I don't see that working because you, your position is at odds. You have very different ideas of what a family system is because your experience is so different. And I think that I did find that. I'm the oldest. My last relationship, he was the youngest. I don't know. Maybe there is something to that. Maybe it's all phony baloney, but... <laughs> well, and it makes me wonder, like, with your parenting style, if <laughs> how you were raised like, Absolutely. with that birth order then makes your parent, like, how you parent your kids different. Yeah. I 100% believe it does because are your older brothers more strict with their kids than you are with yours? I would say, yes, more. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And see, I think I will be a lot more firm with my kids than, like, my youngest brothers are because they didn't really have a lot of hard expectations to follow. And I bet they disagree. I bet they listen and they're like, Bianca, you're crazy. And I'm like, no, listen, I lived it. (laughs) We did not have the same parents. We did not. We did not have the same parents. And my mom always jokes that my brother and me, the oldest two, were the guinea pig kids. Like we did, we tested everything out that's on you guys. That's literally not a joke. No, it's not. <laughs> like they, that's what happened. I that's prom- the reality and of I what was happening. And I promise you that th- that's what she says. <laughs> she says that. Everyone but the baby <laughs> says that, you know, because we were four years apart. All of us were four years until my youngest brother, and it was a five-year gap. We always say that my parents, like, got so tired. <laughs> they just gave up. They were just like... <laughs> they're like grandparents at this point that's I mean my parents have made comments like that too <laughs> so there's three years between the next youngest and me and then there's eight years and then ten years 
and then 13 years. There's a 13 year gap between me and my youngest brother. Yeah. Hannah, what's the age gap between your oldest brother and your youngest brother? So it's 13 years. So we have the same, that's so crazy. <laughs> we have the same family dynamic, you. really. But yeah, they like, we always joke that my parents were like, you know. They just got too old. Jonathan, <laughs> Jonathan was the grandchild. <laughs> well, my mom wasn't like super young having even my oldest brother, Dax. So my mom was 32 when she had my youngest brother, my youngest biological brother. And then we adopted Tyson. Yeah. I'm 33. And I have had zero kids. <laughs> I have a couple questions. Okay. About birth order and su- such. Um, first of all, what do they say about the middle child? Like, because you are the oldest, but and, and that's where we differ, is that mm-hmm. I'm like the, the third youngest. Like, I'm almost the baby if, it, if my parents wouldn't have a, had a fifth child. Right. <laughs> or a child five years later, not a fifth child. A fourth child yeah. five years later. So I know that a lot of research shows that like the middle children can sometimes be lost and they try to overcompensate to get attention because they're not the oldest. And I feel like the oldest have more responsibility put on them. The youngest are considered the babies and they're usually given more attention because they're the babies. And then the kids in the middle just kind of get forgotten and they kind of overreact, like overcompensate to try to get that attention from their parents. I would like to ask my brother what he thinks because we're both middle children. Yeah. But I'm the only girl. So mm-hmm. I feel like I didn't get that as much. Right. But I wonder if he did. I don't know. I'll have to talk to him. And then just a question. So my youngest brother and I are five years apart. My oldest child and my youngest child are five years apart, and I fought with my youngest brother, like, horribly bad, and now my oldest child and my daughter, who are five years apart, cannot get along to save their lives. I was wondering, I think you've mentioned before when talking about birth orders that it can, like, restart. So I was just kind of curious about that. So that's funny, because Caleb and Matthew are five years apart, and when they were kids, they fought like cats and dogs. Like they did not get along. Caleb could not stand Matthew. So I wonder, I think that there's something about the age difference. Like if you have them too, you know, if you have them close together, they're best friends, but they fight. But at the end of the day, they're still best friends. Like my, my kids in my last relationship, there's maybe 14 months between them. Like they're very close in age and they they're all each other had. So they were best friends, but they fought all the time. But like, I remember fighting with my brother and there's three years between us, but then I couldn't have gave a shit less what Matthew did. And there's eight years there. See, and my oldest brother and I really didn't have any issues. Yeah. Um, because he was much older than me. Yeah. But it's almost like, I almost feel like I was the baby for five years. Mm-hmm. And then... The baby came and there was like some kind of like messed up birth order (laughs) or something. Well, it's like you were used to being the baby. And that's kind of what I think happened to Caleb, too. You know, he'd been the baby and got more of the attention for so long. And then at that age of five, when you're kind of. It's a big deal. Corbin started kindergarten that year. I mean, he started kindergarten like a week before Friendly was born. Yeah. So there's a huge life shift going on. And then they have this whole new person in their life that's now getting all of the attention that they are used to. I think that 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 could have a big. Well, and in my blended family, you know, Corbin and Adeline were both like only children. Mm -hmm. And then Adeline on her mom's side, you know, with her mom's side, she is the oldest And on our side, she is the middle child. That's so weird. But she's chill. Like, she is the easy kid. She is laid back. She is chill. And so, yeah, I just think, I I, I find that interesting. So I think something that you, that we could talk about in another episode, there's probably, there's a million different theories about birth order, sibling roles. There's just a lot of different roles that you can play in your family. I find myself being the peacekeeper. I'm in therapy because of that, and I'm really learning how to navigate those waters, but still allow myself to be empathetic and sympathetic and understanding and listen and available without 
it becoming that triangle that we talked about at the beginning of the episode. Yeah. And, and as a peacekeeper, I have felt like I've gotten involved in triangles, yeah. not on purpose. Right. You just, you're just kind of there because you're trying to make sure that everybody is getting along. Yeah. So we finally made it to the last principle, which is societal emotional process, which suggests that social and cultural forces can influence family relationships. And as people experience greater anxiety during periods of societal regression, there can be some negative consequences within the emotions and the emotional systems of family units. So think about one of the many recessions that we've lived through in our lives. And I was going to say which one. Right. Which one? Just pick one. (laughs) But think about how a recession can affect a working parent's day-to-day life. Shoot. Just think about now, like in 2023, prices for basic needs have all but doubled. Now, I want you to tell me how your relationships are at home when your kid makes a bowl of cereal and then just leaves the bowl full of milk sitting on the counter. That bowl, that milk costs $5 a gallon now. Maybe. Maybe more, like depending on where you live in this country. Whereas three years ago, it was probably half that price. The world that we live in can impact how we treat one another in our family system without us even being aware that that's why we're feeling the way we're feeling. And food waste is always something that parents get upset about. You know, I grew up in a home where you don't waste food. You eat what's on your plate. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of why I have a negative relationship with food. (laughs) But, you know, but I can say that you're more aware of that waste when the price triples and your salary doesn't. Yep. And how that anxiety manifests in your home will have lasting impacts on that family system, regardless of whether you mean to do it or not. You know, I think that when the prices of things go up and it's harder to make it, you know, paycheck to paycheck, you're just a little bit more aware that your kid didn't eat the whole bowl of cereal or your kid didn't or waste it. I think the big thing when I was a kid was we would open sodas and just leave them. Not, you or know, like the water bottles that are like, yeah, five drinks taken out of them and then they go to get another one. Yeah. And it, like, homie, that water is good for like a year. <laughs> go big. And go now. Put it back in the fridge. Right. Like I, I've got a McDonald's Dr. Pepper in the fridge from like three weeks ago. Ew. It's not good anymore. I'm not going to drink it. But my intention was that I was going to drink it the next day because it's like, why would I throw this away? This is perfectly good Dr. Pepper. And then I didn't drink it. Well, and I can say that. You know, it's really easy to look at what your family or your parents maybe messed up on. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. I will say that I came from a not, I wouldn't say like the poorest of the poor, but my parents were far from wealthy. And um, I did not realize that as a kid. My parents did a really good job at sheltering us from that until they couldn't any longer. Yeah. And we got old enough to understand but like my mom would not shop for new clothes she would like get hand-me-downs or thrift shop um she was always cooking dinner at home I remember pizza sometimes like as a special thing Mm -hmm. um but eating out wasn't like something that we did and I remember like Christmases being huge and it was because my dad worked extra jobs to like have that money for you know, those Christmases, like he worked to make extra money to make sure that we all had these really big, memorable Christmases. I, you know, I didn't have that experience of realizing that I didn't feel that stress that my parents, I'm sure felt. I didn't either. I had no idea that there were any kind of financial, you know, hardships or struggles when I was a kid, you know, as you get older, you're, you just kind of figure it out. But yeah, my parents never made us feel like we didn't have money. And I, looking back now, it's like my parents put themselves into massive debt to make sure that we had everything that we ever could have wanted in our lives. And, you know, I am, I'm thankful for that. I'm grateful that we had parents who loved us so much that they wanted us to have the world. You know, if I could go back, I would tell them, it's okay. (laughs) You don't have to. (laughs) I always joke, but it's like a good thing. Like as a kid and 
Aldi's now is not the same as it was when I was a kid. So let's, <laughs> I'm going to start there. Um, but as a kid, I used to think Aldi's was like the coolest place to go because they had no like tall shelves. So mm-hmm. like the center was all of those um, coolers that were like oh, to your yeah. waist. Yep. And, um, or freezers, they were, they were both. And I could, like my mom would let me walk around because she could see oh, me. sure, yeah. And I thought that was the coolest thing. I had no idea that we were driving you know, to Blue Springs to go to Aldi because it was so cheap compared to going to the local grocery store or Walmart. Yeah. And honestly, I just had this conversation the other day with the way that our economy is. I don't know how people are making it. I don't either. Especially people that maybe only have one income or like make, you know, the bare minimum mm-hmm. of what you can make in this country. Like, I just, I don't know how people are making it. I don't either. And it breaks my heart. Like, families with small kids, yeah, you know, who can't, you know, babies that need formula. Like, there for a while, there was that formula shortage. And formula is so expensive. And I just, I don't know. Yeah, my kids had to have Nutramogen. Yeah. It's that really expensive like oily nasty yeah. stinky formula <laughs> yeah that I don't even think is real like milk <laughs> is weird <laughs> but yeah I just so I could totally see how that would affect kids yeah and not only the way that they might feel about themselves or their surroundings but also how they view the world you know yeah yep so like when you bring that anxiety of financial stress or you know, we're, we're in an election season now, you know, that political stress is going to come into homes and it's going to cause maybe, maybe the parents don't agree on their political views. And there's a lot of heated discussions. And if those aren't done in a way that promote understanding and compassion, that's going to cause a lot of turmoil and anxiety between the two adults in the house. The kids are going to see that they're going to feel that, you know, children are very receptive And I think that how you act around them, they pick up on that. They can feel it. Like, if things are not okay, they know. You don't have to even say anything. No, you sure don't. Well, my rule is is we just don't watch, like, the news (laughs) at all in our house. If you want to know something, you have a smartphone, Google it. Because I just don't think it's healthy in the world we live in to, like, have the news going in. First of all, it's depressing. Yeah. I do, I think you mentioned in, I don't remember which episode it is, but that society is a reason for anxiety a lot. 100%. And I think it's because we have instant access to so much information at our fingertips. Mm -hmm. Whereas like growing up, you had to wait till the five o'clock news to see what was going on in the world. You had to read the newspaper You had to go do your dial up on your computer if you wanted to go. And even then, like, I don't know that information online news. Yeah. Like you just. I don't envy. The world that these children are growing up in. Me either. I just I think that that girl, could you imagine if we had smartphones when we were 12, 13, 14? Listen, I was (laughs) our friend Autumn and I would go to the library after school and high school before academic team practice and read the encyclopedias to get our information. <laughs> okay. Oh, <no. laughs> we were some nerds. She but... did. She was a nerd in another episode. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I am a nerd. <laughs> I I own it. I love it. My kid one time asked what an encyclopedia was. <laughs> and I was like, it's the paper Google. We failed them. It's <laughs> the paper Google in a book. Google book. I love it. It's the book version. So to wrap things up, I think that it's important for families to be aware of their actions and the reasoning behind those actions. There are ways that we as adults cope in situations and find safety that were created in situations that were not healthy and therefore those coping strategies are not healthy. So I personally know people that have grown up in not just a dysfunctional family, but like abuse and mm-hmm. neglect. Yeah. And I have seen firsthand them choose intentionally to do different with their family and their children. And it is possible. Like it is possible it is. to break that cycle and to start a new one. And it 
it makes me emotional. It's a very beautiful, beautiful thing when you see somebody come from something so ugly and intentionally create something so beautiful for their children. Yeah, because it is possible. It is possible. You can break that generational trauma and it does not have to continue on with you. You know, your parents did it this way. Their parents did it this way. Their parents did it this way. That doesn't mean that you have to do it that way. Exactly. So my call to action for anyone listening is to take a look at yourself, your current family system, and the family system you grew up in, and see what you find. What roles did you play in your family growing up? What roles do you play now? Do you have a high differentiation of self? What can you do to make your future family system a higher functioning and safer space? Thank you for listening and joining us today. I'm Bianca. And I'm Hannah. And we are Taking Taking Back Back Sunday. Sunday.